Hello there. Welcome back to The Layman's Historian, Episode 39, The Delayer, Part 1. Last time, we covered how aggressive Roman consuls once again came out badly in another battlefield clash with Hannibal. Today, we will see how the Romans changed strategies on the orders of their new dictator to confront Hannibal's descent into Italy. Following the Battle of Lake Trasimene, the Roman Senate reeling from these consecutive disasters, took the tremendous step of appointing a dictator, a single man, to helm the state in her moment of crisis. To modern ears, the term dictator immediately rings alarm bells, which conjure up images of 20th century autocrats. But the Roman office of dictator during the Republic differed significantly from these modern conceptions. Although Polybius states that a dictatorship involved suspending, quote-unquote, the Roman constitution, this statement is somewhat misleading. Unlike the American and other modern constitutions, the Roman constitution allowed for the temporary appointment of a dictator with supreme imperium, or executive power, to meet extraordinary challenges. Typically only resorted to in times of great crisis, when the regular consuls were not up to the task, the dictator was often, but not always, appointed for a rea gerunda causa, meaning for the matter to be done, which usually meant a grave external threat to the state when supreme military command was devolved on one man to meet the challenge. When the senators agreed that a threat warranted such a step, they issued a senatus consultum, a decree authorizing one or both of the consuls to nominate a dictator. Once the consuls had given their nomination, the Comitia Curiata, or Curiate Assembly, would ratify the choice. Memories of the tyrannical kingship in their past likely explain this rather elaborate election procedure, which, despite its procedural hurdles, was after all intended to quickly elect an official who could meet a crisis head-on. Thus, an election which required the input of all sections of the current government served as an innate check against the dictator's power. Another safeguard was the causa, or reason, a dictator had been appointed. Although the dictator held nearly unlimited power in his sphere of authority, that sphere itself was delineated by the task the Senate had charged him to accomplish. Thus, a dictator appointed to supreme military command could not deviate outside his military sphere by meddling in civil affairs, and vice versa. Additionally, other magistrates did not resign their positions upon the appointment of a dictator, although they were subject to the dictator's imperium. A final check against dictatorial power was a kind of quasi-term limit, the dictator could generally only exercise his powers for the duration of the crisis, or a term of six months, whichever was shorter. Once his term expired, protocol required that he, like the great Cincinnatus from two centuries earlier, lay down his sword and return to his plow. After Trasimene, however, the Senate had a procedural predicament. One consul, Flaminius, was dead and the other was cut off from Rome and unable to consult with the government regarding who to appoint. In response to this, the Senate took the heretofore unprecedented step of appointing the dictator directly. 
To justify such an unorthodox appointment procedure, the senators would have to choose an extraordinary candidate who held the confidence of all the people. Given the gravity of the situation, there was only one man that choice could fall on. Quintus Fabius Maximus Vericosus occupied one of the highest positions in Roman society even before his nomination to the dictatorship in 217 BC. A member of the gens Fabii, an ancient family which claimed direct descent from the wandering Hercules, Fabius came from a long line of statesmen who had left their indelible mark upon the Roman state. His grandfather, Quintus Fabius Maximus Rullianus, was the first to be surnamed Maximus, meaning the greatest, for his heroism in the Samnite Wars. Rullianus had served as dictator himself during those same wars, while other members of the Fabii family had supplied Rome with numerous consuls and even a few more dictators over the centuries. It is therefore unsurprising that the Senate would turn to a member of this ancient house to meet Rome's crisis. This is not to say that the current Fabius Maximus was undeserving of the faith the Senate placed in him. Sixty-three years of age at the time of his appointment to the dictatorship, Fabius had already held a long and distinguished career in Roman public life. Traveling up the ranks of the Cursus Honorum, the course of honor or ladder of Roman public offices, Fabius had climbed to the heights of the consulship twice already. During one of these terms, the Senate had awarded him of coveted triumph for his victory over the Ligurians in 233 BC. His road to high office belied his slow start in childhood. Plutarch tells us that as a boy, Fabius exhibited an excessive mildness of temper. Quote, his slowness in speaking, his long labor and pains in learning, his deliberation in entering into the sports of other children, his easy submission to everybody as if he had no will of his own, made those who judge superficially of him the greater number esteem him insensible and stupid. End quote. He even earned the nickname Ovicula, meaning the lamb, which likely did not enhance his standing with his playmates especially since his other nickname, Varicosis, or Warty, came from a large wart which resided on his upper lip. Yet despite these early disadvantages, Plutarch assures us that some at least could see the latent greatness within this quiet, backward youth. Quote, Few only saw that this tardiness proceeded from stability and discerned the greatness of his mind and the lion-likeness of his temper. As soon as he came into employments, his virtues exerted and showed themselves. His reputed want of energy, then, was recognized by people as in general a freedom of passion. His slowness in words and actions, the effect of a true prudence. His want of rapidity and his sluggishness as constancy and firmness. End quote. By the time of the Punic Wars, Fabius was not only a seasoned commander, but also an accomplished orator. Livy reports that it was Fabius who delivered the ultimatum to the Carthaginian Senate, demanding that they choose peace or war from the folds of his toga, although some accounts dispute this. What is undisputed is that Fabius possessed a cool head and steady hand, traits unusual in the aggressive, 
Virtus charged Roman patricians who surrounded him. Despite, or perhaps because of, his unusual election procedure, Fabius was not allowed to select his own master of horse or second-in-command. Instead, the Senate appointed a man who was more typical of the Roman commanders of the day. Marcus Minucius Rufus had already held the consulship in 221 BC, hinting that he too had won his own share of political experience and honor. Despite his youth when compared with the venerable Fabius, Minucius was not hesitant to speak his mind from the start. The personality clash between the hot-headed Minucius and stoic Fabius was exacerbated by the fact that the two had been political rivals in the past. Nonetheless, they initially fell to work together to raise two new legions to supplement the two marching to join them under the surviving consul Servilius, to strengthen the walls of the city, and to destroy the bridges leading into Italy. Honoring long-standing tradition, Fabius requested permission from the Senate to ride on horseback during his tenure, which they readily granted. In other respects, though, he made it clear that he was the man in charge. When the consul Servilius arrived, Fabius ordered him to dismiss his own twelve lictors, attendants who bore the fasces as sign of the leader's authority, and present himself before Fabius and his twenty-four lictors as a private citizen. Following this public acknowledgement of Fabius's seniority, Servilius was dispatched to command the Roman fleet patrolling the coast leaving Fabius in momentarily undisputed command on land. Having set his material preparations in motion, Fabius then turned to supplicating the supernatural. As an intensely religious people, the Romans saw their successive disasters as a sign that the gods had turned against them. Fabius thus ordered the Sibylline books, a collection of sacred oracles, be consulted as to how the Romans could regain the gods' favor. The answers demanded new heights of devotion, that they renew their vows to Mars, god of war, that they build a temple to Venus Erycina, a Sicilian goddess, as well as resolution, and finally, that they make a pledge of the sacred spring, one of the most ancient elements of the Roman religion, where the people vowed to sacrifice the whole spring's produce of Italy, including all sheep, cows, goats, and swine, in propitiation to the gods. Plutarch states that Fabius enacted these religious rites not so much from a belief in their efficacy, but rather to encourage the populace to believe that the gods were on their side. Besides calming the people's fears, it also served the secondary purpose of countering Hannibal's propaganda that Rome's gods had abandoned her. Plutarch goes on to say that, quote, For his own part, Fabius placed his whole confidence in himself, believing that the gods bestowed victory and good fortune by the instrumentality of valor and prudence, and thus prepared, he set forth to oppose Hannibal. Meanwhile, Hannibal had been making his own plans. His army had suffered severely from encamping in the open winter air, as well as in the subsequent crossing through the Arno marshes, and his men reported many ailments while the horses and pack animals suffered from malnutrition and mange. Given this, Hannibal led them along the coastline down the Adriatic, 
pillaging the rich countryside and restoring the health and vigor of his men and animals. Polybius reports that his soldiers gained so much booty that they could not carry it all, while they put to death all adult Roman males who fell into their hands. Morale improved greatly following this plundering and controlled bloodletting. Intriguingly, Polybius also reports that Hannibal re-equipped his Libyans with huge amounts of Roman gear stripped from the dead at Trebia and Trasimene. Thus, when the Romans met Hannibal's veterans again, they would find Scutum and Gladius-wielding warriors clad in their own chain mail, legionaries in all but name. Some historians posit that Hannibal also reorganized his veterans on the basis of the Roman manipular system at this time, creating smaller, more mobile units than the phalanx historically used by the Carthaginians. This would seem likely given Hannibal's genius in utilizing rapid, mobile warfare, as well as the fact that Polybius uses the word spirii, a unit similar to a Roman maniple, to describe Hannibal's army in the battles following Trasimene. However intriguing this hypothesis might be, it is still disputed as to whether or not the reorganization followed the re-equipping. But regardless, it is safe to say that Hannibal's army likely became more Romanized the longer it stayed in Italy. Having free access to the sea, Hannibal also sent news of his great victories to Carthage, and doubtless orders and requests for the campaigns ahead. When Fabius finally caught up with the Carthaginians in Apulia, Hannibal immediately employed his old tactics of trying to bring on a battle. To his surprise, the Romans did not march out to meet him, leaving the disappointed Carthaginians to return to the camp, with Hannibal muttering, in the words of Livy, that, quote, the Romans' martial spirit was cowed at last, that they were beaten men who had openly yielded their claim to valor and glory. End quote. Following this, Hannibal continued to try and bring Fabius to battle, anxious for what would happen to his fragile coalition if his victories dried up. Thus, says Livy, quote, He began with tactics deliberately designed to provoke retaliation, constantly shifting his position, devastating before his opponent's eyes the fields and crops of friendly peoples. Now, in double-quick time, his column would disappear from sight. Now again, a detachment would suddenly take up a concealed position at some bend in the road on the chance of surprising Fabius should he come down on the plain, end quote. Fabius, however, would have none of it. His steady hand held back the chafing legionaries, keeping them in close formations and occupying strategic positions where the Romans could threaten Hannibal's men without being exposed to the superior Carthaginian cavalry. Livy describes the thoroughness of the consul's control. Quote, Fabius himself kept moving on high ground only, never far from the enemy, with the object of maintaining contact, but avoiding a clash. So far as circumstances allowed, he kept his men within their defenses. Wood and fodder were never collected by small parties, and always within a restricted area. A small detached force of cavalry and light troops, specially designed to meet sudden emergencies, adequately protected his own men, and provided at the same time a weapon of offense against casual enemy raiders. He steadily refused to stake all on a general engagement, but at the same time minor skirmishes of no great moment 
on favorable ground and with a safe refuge within reach, gradually accustom his men, shaken as they were by their previous defeats, at last to feel fewer doubts about either their fighting spirit or their luck. End quote. Fabius's strategy, unlike that of previous Roman commanders, centered on Rome's greatest advantages, her resources and manpower. Hannibal's men might have been, in the words of Polybius, quote, trained ever since they first reached military age by continuous warfare. They had a commander who had shared this upbringing and had been accustomed since childhood to campaigning in the field. They had won many battles in Iberia and had defeated the Romans and their allies twice in succession. Above all, they had nothing to lose. In victory lay their only hope of survival. End quote. What Hannibal currently possessed in quality, though, Rome could counter with quantity. By denying Hannibal men and supplies to prosecute his campaign, Fabius could win the war without risking another disastrous defeat. In addition to his conservative deployments, the dictator ordered Roman citizens in the country to pursue a scorched-earth policy against the invaders, burning their autumn crops and farmsteads before retreating to the safety of walled cities. Plutarch sums up Fabius' strategy simply, saying that, quote, Seeing that the Carthaginians were but few, and in want of money and supplies, Fabius deemed it best not to meet in the field a general whose army had been tried in many encounters, and whose object was a battle, and instead let the force and vigor of Hannibal waste away and expire like a flame for want of the ailment. End quote. Perhaps alone among his contemporaries, Hannibal perceived the genius of Fabius's delaying tactics, and thus he tried everything in his power to thwart the Romans' plans and bring on a decisive battle. The Roman officers under Fabius shared the Carthaginian commander's anxiety regarding their dictator's tactics, but for different reasons. As we remember from episode 31, Roman warfare before this had nearly always centered on concentrated births of vertas a volatile mixture of extreme aggression, courage, and discipline which overwhelmed the enemy. To delay meeting an enemy, especially one which threatened Rome's own soil, was to conduct the war in an ignoble and cowardly fashion. No one was more outspoken about this pervasive belief than Fabius's own second-in-command, Minutius. Early on, when Fabius's strategy became clear, Minucius established himself as the ringleader of the dissenters, decrying Fabius as unworthy to lead since he lacked the stomach to fight. Many officers, and even the common soldiers, were swayed by his harangues, to the point that men began to call Fabius Hannibal's pedagogue, quote-unquote, since all he did was follow Hannibal up and down the countryside and wait on him. Other insults followed with soldiers saying that Fabius kept to the mountains in order to better watch the countryside burn around him, or that he thought to carry the army into heaven since he had no hopes of retaking earth. One nickname stuck, and would be carried by Fabius even beyond the grave and into history. Cungtator, meaning the delayer. Fabius remained unmoved. Quote, I should be more faint-hearted than they make me he replied when news of the unrest came to him, if through fear of idle reproaches I should abandon my own convictions. 
It is no inglorious thing to have fear for the safety of our country, but to be turned from one's course by men's opinions, by blame and by misrepresentation, shows a man unfit to hold an office such as this, which, by such conduct, he makes the slaves of those whose errors it is his business to control. End quote. Hannibal, meanwhile, frustrated in his attempts to come to grips with the Romans, now led his men on a daring descent into Campania to ravage the plains surrounding the city of Capua. Long famous as a powerful force in Italian geopolitics, Capua had succumbed to Roman dominion in 338 BC. Even so, it had long proven an unreliable and troublesome province with territorial ambitions of its own. Now, three Campanian aristocrats whom Hannibal had released previously following Trebia and Trasimene made overtures to the Carthaginians with hopes of bringing Capua over to the Carthaginian side. Tempted by these promises and the prospect of reviving his horses in the rich Campanian pastures, Campania was famous for its horsemen, Hannibal struck camp and marched further into southern Italy. He calculated that once his troops ravaged what Livy called the loveliest region of all Italy, one of two things would happen. Either the Romans would finally be forced to fight, or he would demonstrate to all Italy that Rome could no longer protect them from his hand. If all went according to plan, mass defections from the Italian Socii would follow. To Hannibal's surprise and chagrin following his two great victories, the Socii, barring a few minor exceptions, had remained grimly loyal to the mother city, shutting their gates to the Carthaginians and continually sending their sons to fight in Rome's armies. Livy states that the reason the cities remained with Rome was, quote, because they were subject to a just and moderate rule and were willing to obey their betters, end quote. Condescension aside, there is likely a grain of truth in this boasting. Hannibal in general found the Italian city-states stony ground for his liberation propaganda. Rather than a willingness to follow their Roman betters, however, what contributed more to their reluctance to abandon Rome was the Roman system of laws and especially citizenship, which gave the Italians, unlike the Libyans and Numidians subject to Carthage, a stake in the fate of Rome's hegemony. If Hannibal could topple Rome's image as the great protector of Italy, though, perhaps he could dislodge these loyal allies from their allegiance. Thus his descent into Capua. He would have to tread carefully, though. The plains surrounding Capua were encircled by steep mountains with only three narrow passes providing an entrance. If he did not plan his exit strategy carefully, there would be a serious risk of becoming trapped within the plain. After reviewing his options, he called his local guides together and told them to bring him to the town of Cassinum, 40 miles from Capua. The guides, however, misunderstood Hannibal's foreign pronunciation, and instead of leading the Carthaginians to Cassinum, led them to the town of Cassilinum, which stood less than three miles from Capua. Upon entering the valley and seeing the mountains which formed a barrier on all sides, Hannibal called his guides and asked where they were. When the guides replied that they would be in Cassilinum before nightfall, Hannibal, enraged, ordered the men scourged and crucified as a warning to others. 
Hannibal's sudden wrath likely proceeded from his keen understanding of the vulnerability of his position. The valley in which his army had entered fell down to the sea, where the Volturnus River overflowed into a series of bogs and marshland. All about this valley, high mountains hemmed him in, and his scouts soon reported that, as he feared, Fabius had followed in his wake. Seeking to make the most of his position, Hannibal fortified a camp near the Volturnus and dispatched bands of raiders across the plain. Besides the vast amount of booty that fell into their hands, the Carthaginians captured thousands of cattle which they secured around their camp. With his plunder in hand, Hannibal set about devising a plan to escape from Capua. In the hills, the Roman lieutenants urged Fabius to strike. They had forced march to Campania, ostensibly to prevent Hannibal from plundering the country, but now, having arrived at the pass, Fabius refused to leave the high ground to confront the Carthaginians in the plain. Instead, he posted 4,000 men in the nearest defile to prevent Hannibal from breaking out before encamping the rest of his men on a nearby ridge. The dictator hoped that Hannibal would be forced to either fight his way out uphill or, alternatively, he would have to retreat through one of the other routes through the mountains, exposing his flanks and rear to Roman attacks. If he remained, his army would have to encamp for the entire winter in the open field where supplies would inevitably run low. With his antagonist well and truly trapped, Fabius settled in to wait for Hannibal to pick his poison. When Minutius saw that Fabius made no move to attack Hannibal in the plain, he could no longer even attempt to disguise his scorn. Quote, Are we here, he cried, merely to enjoy the pleasant spectacle of our friends being butchered and their houses burned? Are we not ashamed, if for nothing else, at least for these citizens of ours, whom Romans of old sent out as settlers to guard this frontier from Samnite aggression? It is not by their neighbors the Samnites that the flames are kindled now but by a foreigner from Carthage, whom our own procrastination and inertia have allowed to come here from the ends of the world. Our fathers thought it an insult to their power that Carthaginian fleets should cruise off their coast, and are we so degenerate as to see unmoved that same coast full of Numidians and Moors out to destroy us? To imagine a war can be won by doing nothing whatever, but pray, is folly. Soldiers must be armed. They must be led into the field of battle. You must meet your enemy man against man. Rome's power grew by action and daring, not by these do-nothing tactics which the faint-hearted call caution. End quote. While the Roman subordinates steamed over their forced inaction, Hannibal at last devised his plan of escape. Summoning Hasdrubal, his commander of engineers, Hannibal ordered him to select 2,000 of the strongest oxen the Carthaginians had captured. This done, the engineers tied bundles of wood around the horns of each ox and herded them together. Finally, Hannibal ordered his men to eat dinner and assemble in their units at nightfall. Livy describes what happened next. Quote, Immediately after dark, Hannibal set his men on the move keeping absolute silence, and the oxen were driven on a little ahead of the column. When the army reached the foothills and entered the narrow passes, the signal was given to light up and drive the oxen up the slopes in front of them. The unfortunate beasts ran like mad things, 
terrified by the glare of the flames, not to mention the pain which soon burned down to the very root and quick of their horns. They dashed about this way and that, and before long, all the scrub was burning as if the woods and mountains had been set on fire. Tossing their heads in a vain attempt to shake off the pain, they succeeded only in fanning the flames to greater violence, till the whole scene looked, from a distance, like an army of men rapidly running hither and thither. End quote. When the Roman sentries stationed in the pass saw the fiery brands rushing towards them, they fled in terror, leaving Hannibal free to lead his army, along with his plunder and the surviving oxen, safely to the other side. Fabius, for his part, kept his men under arms, but did not venture outside the walls of his camp, fearing to fall into a trap and reluctant to engage in a battle at night. When dawn broke, however, and he saw what had happened, he dispatched a strong force of Romans to attempt to catch the Carthaginian rearguard. Hannibal had preempted him, though, and sent back his own crack band of Spaniards. In the mountain fighting which followed, Livy gives us a clear picture of the skill of the Spanish mountaineers versus the clumsy Romans. Quote, The Spaniards were well accustomed to mountain warfare, and well adapted by training and equipment to rapid assaults over craggy and broken ground. So what with their speed of foot, the character of their weapons, and the mobile tactics they employed, they had little difficulty in foiling a heavily armed enemy, untrained in guerrilla warfare, and accustomed to fighting on level ground. The combatants separated on by no means equal terms, the Spaniards almost without loss, the Romans with a number of dead, and returned to camp. End quote. Following Hannibal's escape from Campania, Fabius's stock in Rome stood at the lowest ebb. Not only had he prosecuted the war in a most un-Roman way, but when he had finally cornered Hannibal, the latter slipped through his fingers with a typical Punic trick. To many Romans, Minucius's words appeared to have greater wisdom than Fabius's, especially when the dictator indicated that he had no intention of altering his course. From this point forward, an active movement began to replace the cautious dictator with his firier second-in-command. The results would prove disastrous. Next time, we will cover the consequences of the fallout between the two Roman commanders. Until then, take care and read more history.